Well, what to say about Abraham Kuyper? Did you ask that question? No. Oh, all right. You're, you're spared that one. All right. Did you ask that question? No. Um, what? Oh, he has a lot of brothers here. Okay. Um, there are. Uh, was Abraham Kuyper right about presumptive regeneration? And the answer is yes and no. <laughs> now, if you want a little fuller answer, um, Kuyper asked the question: On what basis do we baptize our children? Or if John Murray had asked the question, he'd say: What is the warrant for baptizing our children? And uh, Kuyper said the warrant for baptizing our children is that we presume they are regenerate. That the warrant of bapt infant baptism comes from regeneration. I think Kuyper was wrong on that. Uh, I think it was an interesting theological point. Uh, Kuyper was trying to clarify some things. I don't think it's, he was right. I think the warrant for infant baptism is not in regeneration but in the covenant. Um, the misuse of Kuiper's notion of presumptive regeneration is to say, um, I can be presumptuous about my children's spiritual state. I don't need to worry about them. I don't need to pray about them because the Lord will take care of them. And no matter what happens, everything will work out fine. That is not what I would call presumptive regeneration. I'd call that presumptuous regeneration. Kuiper never taught that and uh, attacked it. And, uh, but that somehow what Kuiper is thought to have taught and if that's what you think he taught then he was wrong but he didn't teach it now what's right in what Kuiper was saying I would say what's right in what Kuiper is saying is that we should presume as we raise them that our children are regenerate that is we should act as if they are regenerate um, but I don't think that leads to presumptuousness I think what it leads to is that we treat our children as we tr treat all regenerate people, namely we call them to faith and repentance, as I tried to say in the last hour. And I think to the extent that Kuiper says, don't treat your children as little pagans, but treat them as genuine members of Christ, that's good advice. But genuine members of Christ are not just left alone and told, oh, well, boys will be boys. Uh, genuine members of Christ are not just told, uh, oh, go ahead and live any way you want, it doesn't really matter. Genuine members of Christ are encouraged to live for Christ. And uh, that's, I think, how we ought to raise our children. So that's a very brief answer. If you want to follow up, um, come back next year. <laughs> well, now we're going to talk about the Lord's Supper. As you can see, we're moving to less and less controversial issues as we uh, go along. Uh, somebody said that uh, perhaps nothing in the whole history of the church has been so divisive as the sacrament of unity in the supper of our Lord. And there's a good measure of truth to that. Um, uh, a great deal of blood, both figuratively and literally, have been spilled over the Lord's Supper. It is probably true that in the 16th century, more Protestants were put to death for de denying the Roman Catholic doctrine of the Lord's Supper than for affirming justification by faith alone. Probably the most emotionally divisive issue of the 16th century was the Lord's Supper. And that is sort of a great mystery to an awful lot of us because we don't really think a great deal about Lord's Supper one way or the other. 
And uh, for many people, it's sort of hard to figure why anybody get all that exercised about it. And for many Protestants, it's much clearer, they much more easily express what they don't believe about the Lord's Supper than what they do believe about the Lord's Supper. So we start with a test. Who said, and do you agree with the statement? We say that what is eaten and drunk by us in the supper is the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. Well, let's take the easy part. Do you agree with that? How many people agree with that? One person. I think the presbytery should take note that he's a presbyter and perhaps there will want to be a special meeting to deal with this uh, brother. We say that what is eaten and drunk by us is the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. Now, when I read that uh, at seminary in a class of mine, uh, nobody agrees with it. And I ask who said it, and the nearly chorus answer I get is, Roman Catholics. I say, no. There's a slightly stunned pause. And then they say, Lutherans. I say, no. Well, now they don't know where to go. They've ex exhausted all the enemies list. <laughs> this statement is from the Belgic Confession. Let me read the whole sentence. In the meantime, we err not when we say that what is eaten and drunk by us is the proper and natural body and the proper blood of Christ. But the manner of our partaking of the same is not by the mouth, but by the Spirit through faith. Now, that's an interesting statement because it distinguishes what we receive from how we receive it. And we'll want to keep that distinction in mind as we go along. How many agree with the statement now? Or at least are willing to reconsider? How could it be that uh, one of the standard Reformed confessional statements, uh, probably... Uh, uh, next to the Westminster Confession of Faith, the most subscribed Reformed Confession of Faith, the Belgic Confession, how could it be that it would make such a statement that what we eat and drink is the how, what, what, see how, how, proper and natural, proper and natural body and proper blood of Christ? How could they say such a thing? What, what possessed the man? Well, it, it, it should at least uh, perk up our ears and, and lead us to think, uh, do we understand all about the supper that we, we can profitably understand? What, what makes this statement of the Belgic Confession that um, I think Calvin would have written amen to in the margin, underlined it and said good if he were the professor correcting it, uh, what makes this language seem so strange to our ears? and uh, perhaps difficult for us to accept. And uh, again, the short answer, I think, is that the Reformed tradition has had two primary teachers about the Lord's Supper in terms of influence. One was Ulrich Zwingli, the reformer of Zurich, whose view of the Supper was what we might call a kind of spiritual memorialism. The Spirit works through the Supper to remind us of Jesus and to draw us to greater faith. 
The other position in the Reformed community on the Lord's Supper was that of John Calvin, who would have expressed himself as the Belgic Confession did. The Supper is not a spiritual memorial, it is a true communion of the body and blood of Christ. Now, Zwingli and Calvin never knew each other. Uh, Zwingli died relatively young, a martyr's death, in 1531. Uh, he marched out with the troops of Zurich against a surprise attack from some of the uh, Roman Catholic Swiss cantons on the, on the city of Zurich. He was wounded. He went forth as a chaplain. He was wounded on the field of battle, and when the Roman Catholic troops found him, they hacked him to pieces. And so when he died, the Church of Zurich... I think rightly saw him as a great martyr of the faith and uh, was very little inclined to change then anything that he had taught. But Zwingli was succeeded as the leader by, uh, by a minister in Zurich, as the leading minister in Zurich by the name of Heinrich Bullinger. And Bullinger was a close uh, companion and colleague of John Calvin. And although Bullinger tried to stay close to uh, Zwingli's view of the sacrament, he also was sympathetic to Calvin. And they actually were able to reach an agreement with one another. But the history of Reformed Christianity is that the position of John Calvin on the Lord's Supper is largely the position of our confessions. The Belgic Confession, the Heidelberg Catechism, and the Westminster Standards. But the position of Zwingli is largely the position of the people. Uh, we have, by and large, as Reformed churches, been rather more comfortable with the notion that we stress remembering Christ, do this in remembrance of me, than we are comfortable with the words of our Lord, this is my body. Now, when you hear that word of our Lord, this is my body. This is the second test. You didn't do so well on the first test. This is the second test. When you hear the words, this is my body, what is your first reaction? For an awful lot of people, the first reaction is to begin to explain what it doesn't mean. Well, it, it doesn't mean it is his body. It doesn't mean that. Uh, we're nervous about those words. We are inerrantists, but they're, they're works in the hearts of many of us. The suspicion, never to be articulated, but the suspicion that Jesus would have been better advised to say something else. Now, we'd never say that. But you see, that's a very strong statement, isn't it? This is my body. And uh, John Calvin, I will say again, in my judgment, was the greatest teacher on the sacraments in the history of the church, the profoundest teacher on the sacraments in the history of the church, but not the most powerful, uh, most popular. Um, Charles Hodge, when he commented on Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper, said it was peculiar. Robert Dabney said it was strange, incomprehensible, and impossible. William Cunningham said it was unintelligible invention, perhaps the greatest blot on the history of Calvin's 
Calvin's labors as a public instructor. These great 19th century Reformed theologians were giving expression, I think, to what a lot of people in the pew always felt. What in the world is Calvin saying? And can he really mean it? And today I'd like to suggest that not only did he mean it, but he was right. Now, I don't want to get into a lot of trouble here, but I really think this is profitable. Now, part of the reaction to Calvin is, um, you can hear a, a lecture or two on Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper, you can read a book or two on Calvin's view of the Lord's Supper, and you can still come away scratching your head and saying, now what did Calvin really mean? There's a lot there. It's very profound. It is in some ways complex and difficult. But on the other hand, I'd like to suggest today, there's a lot that's very simple and straightforward about it. Calvin would not have thought his view of the supper was really difficult to understand. And in fact, it's kind of fascinating. When you look at um, uh, Calvin's Genevan Catechism, there are only, there's only about two pages on the Lord's Supper. He doesn't go on and on and on about it. It's, it's rather straightforward. In his form for the administration of the Lord's Supper, in the Geneva Service Book, the instruction section of what the sacrament means is less than a page. Calvin felt he could rather briefly and succinctly express what it was he felt needed to be said. And I'm going to try to do that today. We'll see how successfully. But Calvin wanted to bring home to the people of God, again, the real centrality and importance of the sacrament as a part of their spiritual life, as a part of the nourishment that Christ gives to his people. Calvin said it's not accidental that it's a supper. It's a place where we are fed. It's a place where we are nourished. And the supper is just like suppers in general. It is necessary to our spiritual survival. As food is necessary to our physical survival, the, the Lord's Supper is necessary for our spiritual uh, survival. As we need nutrition, as we need nourishment, uh, physically, so we need it spiritually, and the supper is one of the ways in which the Lord provides it. Nevertheless, Calvin recognized it's a little difficult to talk about this. Listen to what he himself said. Now, if anyone asks me how the supper is to be understood, or how the supper works, I will not be ashamed to admit that the mystery is too sublime for my intelligence to grasp or my words to declare. Now, I think that's important to ponder a minute because we often get the, 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 uh, the picture painted by enemies that Calvin is this kind of proud rationalist. He's proud of his theological ability. He can explain everything. He can uh, take the whole Bible and tell you exactly what it means. He can turn it into a, a statement of faith. And that is not the spirit of John Calvin. That is not the air that he breathes. He recognizes his weakness, his limitations. And he says, when I come to the supper, I recognize there's a mystery there that is too sublime for my intelligence to grasp or my words to declare. And then he says, perhaps the most unreformed thing that we could imagine John Calvin saying. It's a shock. Hold on to your seats. 
To speak more plainly, I experience rather than understand it. Here we are betrayed at the core by our reformer. We who have labored against experience in all of its forms and insisted that intelligence and understanding is the path to heaven, here Calvin says, I experience it rather than understand it. And I think what he's saying there is, here we meet God. And there is something ineffable, mysterious, incomprehensible about us meeting with God. And yet that's what God is pleased to do with us through the supper. Here then, without any arguing, I embrace the truth of God in which I may safely rest content. Christ proclaims that his flesh is the food, his blood the drink of my soul. I offer him my soul to be fed with such food. In his sacred supper he bids me take, eat, and drink his body and blood under the symbols of bread and wine. I have no doubt that he truly proffers them and that I receive them. All right, the supper is our nourishment, and with what are we nourished? The body and blood of Christ. Cannibalism. Is that what we're reduced to? What can this mean? We are nourished with the body and blood of Christ. It is mysterious. But I think if we take a step back, we begin to see what Calvin is laboring for. Calvin says, how are you saved? How are you saved? Are you saved by a spirit? Are you saved by a teacher? Are you saved by God eternally before the Incarnation? Well, in a certain sense, you can say yes to all of those things. But what Calvin wants to say is the actual outworking of the eternal divine plan for your salvation comes to culmination and comes to fruition in one place on the cross where Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, died for your sins. Your salvation is inextricably bound up with the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus did not save you in his pre-incarnate divinity. He saved you because the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. Your access to God in the first place, Calvin says, is not through the divinity of Christ, it's through the humanity of Christ. Now, he's not separating them. He's obviously not denying the divinity of Christ. But he says, if you want to approach God, you must go with a sacrifice. That's what the whole testimony of Scripture says. If you want to meet with God, there has to be a sacrifice for you. There has to be blood poured out for you. Life is in the blood. And if your life is not to be taken by God in the meeting with God, then some other blood must plead for you. And it's not the blood of bulls and goats, which can never take away sin. It's the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. We know that, don't we? That, that's not a shock. That's not a surprise. There is salvation only in the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. Without the blood of Jesus Christ, we cannot hope to be saved. And therefore, in order to be saved, we must be united with Christ. 
we must be joined to him. As Calvin says over and over again, we must be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. You see, Calvin, in a sense, says, when Christ says we are his body, that's not simply a metaphor. There is a, there is a truth statement about that. We are engrafted into Christ. We are connected to him. And his life comes to us through his body and blood given for us on the cross. If you don't have the body and blood, you don't have Christ. Now that gives us an opportunity to uh, turn to uh, one of the uh, great debated texts in the 16th century, John chapter 6. And in John chapter 6, Jesus says some uh, very pointed things. We tend to... uh, read some of them rather quickly. Some of them we take great pleasure in because they're clearly Calvinistic. Maybe slightly anachronistic to put it that way. But but some of them are a little more troubling as they were to the original hearers. Verse 53 of John 6. Jesus said to them, I tell you the truth, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day for my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. Almost sounds like Jesus read the Belgic Confession. Maybe it was the other way around. Now what in the world is Jesus saying? Well, Zwingli said, um, in the first place, he isn't talking about the Lord's Supper. This isn't a chapter about the Lord's Supper. Shouldn't, shouldn't use this to refer to the Lord's Supper. Well, that's true as far as it goes, isn't it? But nonetheless, Jesus says, my blood is real drink, my flesh is real food. What does he mean? Well, Zwingli said, you've got to go down a bit. You've got to go down to verse 63. Jesus explains this. John 6.63 The Spirit gives life. The flesh counts for nothing. The words I have spoken to you are spirit and they are life. Ah, that's the solution, isn't it? When Jesus said you have to eat his flesh and, and drink his blood, he didn't mean that literally. He meant that spiritually. It's really the Spirit that brings life, not flesh and blood. When Luther heard Zwingli say that, Luther concluded Zwingli was not a Christian at all. (laughs) Luther said, what can you mean? What can you mean? Do you really want to say the flesh of Jesus counts for nothing? Now, none of us want to say that. Zwingli didn't really want to say that either. We can't possibly say the flesh of Jesus Christ counts for nothing. Our redemption is in the flesh of Jesus Christ offered on the cross as a sacrifice for sin. Now, it's interesting to me that, in my judgment, nobody in the 16th century got the exegesis of John 6, 63 right. 
they were fighting so much with one another, it seems to me they missed the obvious meaning of the text, which is to say the way I read it. <laughs> I think what Jesus is saying is, this, my spirit gives life, your flesh counts for nothing. The contrast is not between Jesus' spirit and Jesus' flesh. The contrast is between Jesus' spirit and my flesh. This goes back, I think, to earlier themes in John's Gospel. Uh, that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That's what Jesus is reiterating here. He's not at all saying that his flesh doesn't count for, no, for anything. That wouldn't make any sense. We are not saved by his Spirit except the Spirit applying, connecting us with the work of Christ that he did on the cross in his body and in his blood. And so, what is Jesus saying when he says, uh, my flesh is food indeed and my blood is drink indeed? I think he is saying, my flesh and blood are the source of your life. If you will have life, you have to find them in my flesh and blood. You have to find them in being connected to what my flesh and blood is and accomplishes. Or as Calvin would put it, you have to be flesh of his flesh and bone of his bone. You have to be connected to Jesus. You have to be engrafted in Jesus. You have to be connected to all that he is and all that he does. You must have his body and his blood. It's that nourishment that we come back to again that I think Jesus is emphasizing here in John and that Calvin, knowing its difficulty, was trying to capture for us. And what Calvin is ultimately, and I think quite simply saying is, that through the bread and the wine of the Lord's Supper, Jesus himself, in the fullness of his person and of his work, comes to his people and meets with us and makes himself ours. Jesus is not far away. Jesus, in his humanity, is not far away. But we meet with him through the Supper, and in meeting with him, we are strengthened, we are blessed, we are built up in the faith. Christ meets with his people. That's the heart of Christian worship, and that's the promise of the sacrament. He comes and nourishes us, not only with his benefits, but with himself. As Calvin liked to say, in the Lord's Supper, Christ presents what he represents. He represents his body and his blood and he presents that that it might nourish us and strengthen us and build us up in the faith. Now, can we fully understand that? No, I don't think so. But I think we can understand that through the supper we meet Christ, that Christ comes to us and we can understand that he comes in the fullness of who he is. He comes not just as a disembodied spirit, but he c comes to connect us both with his divinity and his humanity and to bless us, to strengthen us, to feed us with himself so that we become more and more Christ-like, more and more conformed to the image of the Son, more and more blessed and sharing in all that he has done for us and in us. So the communion speaks of our need to constantly be renewed in Christ, to constantly be forgiven, 
to constantly be sanctified. And therefore the supper is a kind of culmination of our Christian experience as we come back to the very heart and core of the gospel. And Jesus, I think, in the supper says to us, however much you grow in grace, you never grow beyond me. However much you grow in grace, you never grow beyond your need of me. That in fact, growing in grace is growing closer to me. And that's what I communicate to you. That's what I make available to you in the sacrament. I come to you. Now, sometimes Calvin says Jesus comes to us through the sacrament. And in other times, Calvin says, we come to Jesus through the sacrament. Uh, Calvin uh, often says uh, Jesus is in heaven and we commune with him because by the power of the Spirit in the sacrament we're lifted up to heaven. The Lutherans mocked that notion. But you know, it really is a kind of biblical notion. We saw that earlier, didn't we? Uh, we're already seated in the heavenlies in Christ. That's Paul, not Calvin. Maybe, maybe that's where Calvin got the idea. Uh, we worship in the heavenly temple. We're lifted up by the Spirit into the heavenly temple where Christ is. We enter the heavenly temple, Hebrews tells us, remember, through His flesh, which was the curtain torn to open the way to the Holy of Holies for us. That's the glorious promise of our connection with God, our access to God, and it's the promise of the sacrament. It's what Christ promises to us. You remember, um, Jesus said, it's good for you that I go away because I'll send you the comforter to connect you with me. And that's, that work of the comforter comes through the word preached, to be sure, but it comes also through the word visible in the sacrament. And the great power of the sacrament, it seems to me, is that it draws us back not to looking at clocks. You know the old joke about uh, the visitor to church and he asked, what does this mean and what does that mean as the minister was doing a bunch of things and then the minister took off his watch as he began to preach and the visitor said, what does that mean? And the answer was, nothing at all. Um, <laughs> the great power of the sacrament is that it draws us back to the very heart of the gospel. It draws us back to the cross. It draws us back to a body offered for sin, to blood poured out for sin. It draws us back to the gospel in a way that preachers don't always adequately do. Now, we as preachers know that we ought to preach Christ, and, and we try. Uh, and sometimes we're more successful than others. Sometimes the sermon is full of Christ and it flows right out of the text. Sometimes we preach a text and at the end of the sermon, uh, when we're about done, we suddenly realize, oh, I haven't said much about Jesus and he must be in that text, so I'll say something about Jesus. And that's better than leaving Jesus out. But the congregation feels and the preacher feels that somehow maybe Jesus was a little tacked on in that sermon. Uh, some Christian traditions have almost felt we should never have any sermons except gospel invitations. Never have any sermons except really evangelistic sermons so that we focus on Jesus. 
We need to focus on Jesus. It's not just unbelievers that need Jesus. It's not just unbelievers that need forgiveness and renewal in the Spirit. It's all Christians all the time need that. And so our instincts are right that somehow the, the sermon needs to bring us Jesus. But we also have this notion the sermon needs to teach us things, the sermon needs to exegete texts that are not immediately and obviously Christological, even though we know all the Scripture testifies of Christ. And I would, uh, I would suggest that uh, Jesus knew all that, and he gave us a way for the service to culminate in Christ and in the heart of the Gospel. He gave us the altar call. Now, you see, I said, I said last hour, the altar call, in a sense, is a pseudo-sacrament testifying to something true, namely that the service should culminate in Christ. The problem with the altar call as, as a pseudo-sacrament is that it means the service culminates for the unbeliever. At the end of the service, the minister's talking to the unbelievers. And since this is the gathering of the covenant community, it really makes some sense that the service should culminate in the ministry of Christ and the heart of the gospel to the believing community. And that's what the sacrament is. Now, that still has a lot of relevance to the unbeliever. Because when the sacrament is properly administered, the preacher says, if you're not a believer in Jesus Christ, do not come to this table. This table is a table of decision. It is, it is a table only for the covenant community. You are barred if you do not belong to Christ. Right there, you see, is, is the clear articulation that some belong to Christ and some do not. And you'd better examine your heart to see which group you're in. But the message of the table, not of the overhead projector, the message of the table is that Christ comes and meets with his people and nourishes us with himself to build us up to everlasting life. Now what does this say about the frequency of communion? Well, I'm not dumb enough to talk about that. <laughs> Well, what does it say about the frequency of communion? Zwingli said we ought to have communion once a year. We ought to have communion once a year. Obviously a man who respected the sacrament. It's too important to have more often. We will undervalue it if we have it more often. We won't take it seriously if we have it more often. We won't prepare carefully if we have it more often. Our high esteem for the sacrament is demonstrated by infrequent communion. Why don't we have a similarly high esteem for prayer? You know, if you pray every day, you won't take it seriously. You'll get to just take it for granted. Let's agree just to pray once a year because we really believe so much in prayer. Let's just have one sermon a year. There are moments uh, when that sounds good. I guess for both preacher and layman. Um, uh, let's just have one sermon here. Then we'll really take sermons seriously. Now, you see, the real, um, the real motivation behind Zwingli, I think, is he says, uh, the Lord's Supper is primarily an act of, of remembering. Sort of like your birthday. It's nice once a year to remember your birthday, sort of until you reach a certain age. But, you know, if you had a birthday every day, 
or every week. It would get kind of old. You wouldn't be able to take it seriously. It would get just ordinary. You wouldn't be able to work up all that remembering. And Zwingli says, uh, we only have the energy to work up all that remembering uh, uh, occasionally. And, and so infrequent communion fits very well with a memorialist view of the supper. But if, as the Reformed Confessions teach, the Lord's Supper is a means of grace, if it is a meeting with Christ, if it is a nourishment to the soul, isn't the necessary implication of that that it should be frequent? Do you know what the Westminster Directory of Public Worship says about the frequency of communion? It says... The Lord's Supper ought to be administered frequently. Unless you're Zwinglians. No, it doesn't say that. It says it ought to be administered frequently unless there aren't enough ministers. And then it should be preceded by a time of preparation. It is interesting that the Scots tradition and the Dutch tradition both followed the unless clause, infrequent communion with serious preparation instead of the dominant teaching that it ought to be frequent. Calvin, near the end of his life, wrote and said, I want to lay on the table publicly what I consider to be one of the most serious blots on our Reformation in Geneva, and that is that we don't have weekly communion. And I don't want it to go down into history that this was my idea, is what he said in effect. Calvin said, my idea is we ought to have communion at least, at least, once a week. Now, why is that? Because Calvin said, if communion is a meeting with Christ, isn't more often better? Why would less often be better? If, if communion requires some self-examination, wouldn't it be better to examine ourselves more frequently rather than less frequently? Should not a Christian be ready to come to the table every week? Why put your life in order only once a quarter? Now, Calvin was, in, was compelled to quarterly uh, communion by the city government of Geneva. They said, people don't understand communion well enough. Uh, we need to have the elders visit every family before every communion. And they did. The elders visited every family before every communion to talk to them about their spiritual understanding and state. And the city council felt that the city was too immature in the faith to have communion more frequently. But we as Reformed people, by and large, have followed the practice of the city council that weren't very godly men, by and large, and ignored Calvin. It's interesting, the, um, the church order of the Christian Reformed Church says that, uh, communion is to be administered at least four times a year. And most Christian Reformed churches have it four times a year. They don't seem to have read that, at least, very carefully. Now, I don't want to get on a big tirade about this, although it sort of sounds as if I already have. But I can't help thinking, what would happen if we all tried for a little while, just maybe a week or two, 
singing psalms without musical accompaniment and having weekly communion. In other words, worshiping the way Calvin thought we ought to. Part of what would happen, it seems to me, is suddenly the reality of a reformed approach to worship would come to life. The various ways in which we have been evangelicalized and revivalized might stand out in clearer contrast. And perhaps people coming to visit would say, wow, you guys really are different. They probably already say that. I think part of the genius of reformed worship, and I, you don't have to agree about instruments or psalms or even about weekly communion, but part of the genius of reformed worship is its, is its concentration. We talked about that before. Its simplicity, its spiritual focus, its word-centeredness. And I think part of the, the danger that the reformed community has faced in America gradually developing over, over several centuries is we have gradually imported non-reformed elements into our worship to try to overcome formalism. So let's have special seasons in the year, we may call it Advent and Lent, to be more serious about our faith. Uh, maybe we need uh, some more decorations in the church of one sort or another to make us more warm and focused in our faith. Um, maybe we need to try some kind of Pentecostal approaches to singing to overcome some of the deadness and formalism amongst us. And I guess part of my passion is I see, uh, particularly in the Christian Reformed Church, uh, people looking uh, to the Pentecostal tradition for worship inspiration, people looking to the Anglican tradition for uh, uh, worship inspiration. In fact, uh, the cynics in the Christian Reformed Church say that little publication, Reformed Worship, should really be called Anglican Worship for Reformed Christians. We're looking high church, we're looking low church, we're looking everywhere except to our own Reformed heritage. And for many of us, we've never even given it a try. We've never said, you know, let's have a, a worship service that Cal John Calvin would recognize and see how it goes. Now again, I'm not, uh, I'm not here to proselytize for uh, any of my own peculiarities. But I, but I am saying maybe we need a new seriousness about a real focus on the Word so that our singing, our praying, our preaching, and our sacraments are filled with the words and filled with Christ and call people to the experience of the presence of Christ through His Word. The danger is, as Brian Garrish in a book he wrote on Calvin's view of the supper, the, the danger we slip into, I think he summarizes, he wrote, it is not too difficult to see how the cognitive strand in Calvinism could lead to an arid intellectualism that turns the worshiping community into a class of glum schoolchildren. That ever describe a reformed gathering? A, glass, a class of glum schoolchildren. Heavy didacticism has always been the bane of reformed worship. Now, I am not suggesting for a minute we don't need dark border of thine thou didst take, but we don't need sermons that are just lectures. 
We don't need sermons, the primary function of which is passing on information. We need sermons, the primary function of which is to draw us to Christ and His Word, to fill us with the Spirit that flows through the Word into the Christian community, to bring us not only to understanding but also to experience of the presence of Christ. And I think when there's a true balance of godly music and godly preaching and godly administration of the sacrament, that will happen on our services. Not automatically. Nothing happens automatically. But I think there are wonderful resources in the Reformed heritage that we have to take much more seriously as we think about worship. And my purpose here is not to get you all fighting amongst yourselves about whether to use instruments or not. That's not the point at all. But the point is that we all might begin to study more carefully how we can be more reformed in our worship, more word-centered, more Christ-centered, more faithful in the use of the forms that God has given us for his worship, and therefore, in the best sense, most more excited about being reformed, but more importantly, about knowing Jesus Christ. And as I say, the reformed approach to worship is not to quarrel and to fuss. John Calvin never got weekly communion in Geneva. And uh, several times in his life he complained about it, but he didn't. He didn't leave Geneva, and he didn't go on and on about it. He left his testimony, and he went on. But he brought the people of God to the Word of God. He brought them to Christ. I read to you from the order of worship that Calvin used, how he had the service of the Word, and how he had the service of the upper room. When he wasn't allowed by the city government to actually administer the sacrament. Nonetheless, he read the whole form for the administration of the Lord's Supper every Sunday. And he stood behind the communion table as he read it. <laughs> and they had a sort of dry communion. <laughs> they were proto-Methodists. Um, but what I hope is that, that this series, and we'll talk, we're not quite done, we have one more session tomorrow, but that this series stimulates, as I say, not division and bickering and, and nitpicking, but stimulates thinking about how can we, in a world where so few people have a reformed view of worship, manifest clearly the wonders, the value, the strength of that concentration that is ours on Christ in our reformed heritage. Uh, let's think about that as we sing. Can I... Uh, be directive in that way. Oops. Is this sure? Let's sing uh, 279. I think I've got the right number. <laughs>